This week's show is brought to you by Aiken Promotions, who are bringing David O'Doherty to Dublin, even though he lives in Dublin, but he is playing in Vicar Street on the 4th and 5th of November. Presumably, he will be commuting from his own home uh, to play both gigs. Uh, Regardless, they'll be fantastic. He's an amazing stand-up, always has been one of the best, if not the best, uh, around. He uh, has a really, really great... Uh, album um, called uh, Jokes Ahoy or Giggle Me Timbers which was released on the uh, Trust Me I'm a Thief record label which is an amazing record label that released music by Cy Schroeder and the Redneck Manifesto and Jape and loads of great people and David O'Doherty. I met him once in Moscow when we played a gig there and I was massively intimidated by him and did not really chat to him because I'm a big fan um, but if you like me are a big fan of David O'Doherty but do not have the guts to talk to him in Dublin if you're from Dublin or in the commuting uh, belt of Dublin um, but are willing to pay money to see him and to hear him tell some of his fantastic jokes then I would recommend that you go to the gig that he's playing in Vicar Street on either the 4th or the 5th or both if you want to bring different sets of friends or you know like a partner on one night and your parents on the other night there's lots of combinations the point is the tickets are available on vicarstreet.com and uh, yeah, that, that's an ad that's an ad for that now there's a there's a podcast now Welcome to the Weekly General Meeting, a podcast all about creativity. Uh, that's such a crap sign-in. What? Sorry, I just uh, I know that's like the thing we agreed we should explain what the hell this podcast is. Yeah. But like, what the hell is this podcast? It's a podcast about creativity. Is it though? Isn't it? I don't know. We feature and showcase and... Uh, we 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 showcase creative people. Yeah, from so it's Ireland. like a showcase. It's not like a hey guys, how to be creative. Well, if you're working. In yeah, but then when we talk to people, it's it's a, with a it's a, with a, with a bent towards creativity, isn't it? Generally, oh, yeah. that makes sense. It's not like we don't do like so. You know, take me through your career thing necessarily. Yeah. So it is a podcast about creativity. So you're not. Te- I think these conversations are best off mic. <laughs> we don't see that much of each other. Well, that's true. Uh, so tell us who's on the show then. Um, this is a, a a very another a very interesting uh, episode. I think I think they're all interesting. Um, uh, but uh, Chris Gethard uh, is our guest today. He's uh, not Irish. Again, we're we're going off uh, going off um, brief. But he is bit. Irish American. Like he could play for Ireland. Could he? Didn't know that. Are you just making that up to make this? A no, he's bit he's an Irish American. He describes himself as an Irish Catholic. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, you chatted to him last month at the the uh, Vodafone Comedy Festival. Um, that's one of the perks about being sponsored by the Vodafone Comedy Festival as we were right up until it that they help you get in contact with some of their oh, comedians brilliant especially Chris Gethard because he's such an inspiration if if you haven't heard of Chris Gethard I would suggest that you pause this podcast right now and Google him because he's a really interesting character he came up through the kind of improv community in New York primarily uh, he'd, he's been all around the place in LA and Chicago and stuff as well but he was a big part of the Upright Citizens Brigade which was like a splinter improv comedy theatre that's grown into this massive entity in the States um, that started in New York by people like Amy Poehler, Matt Pesser, all these kind of guys. Um, anyway, the point being, Chris Gethard went down the traditional route of being like a, a, f- a funny guy, stand up, getting sitcom deals, all that kind of stuff. But it didn't really work out. 
and he talks openly about this. He has a he struggles with uh, depression and has had issues in the past, which he's been which he's confronted quite openly and quite collaboratively with the community of people that he has grown because he started a, a public access TV show in New York, which is like the most punk rock thing in the world, and actually. He's obsessed with punk rock as well, which is another thing. His house band is like a punk band. He mar- ended up marrying the singer. Um, but he used to, br- the thing about New York public access is that you can kind of do anything you want. So yeah. he'd have people calling in and now he's got a TV show, which you can see on YouTube. His guests are fantastic. You'll know them all, like Seth Meyers and Jason Manzukas and all these great uh, comedics Will Ferrell's been on it but Chris Gethard has an unbelievable um, ability to to bring in strangers like normal people into like conversations with these kind of well-known showbiz types mm-hmm. and he just encourages he's a lot, not a lot of comedians do this necessarily but um, maybe it's his improv background I'm not sure but maybe it's the punk rock thing where he really fosters this DIY spirit and a lot of the people that are on the show like his sidekick and you know the the girl that answers the Skype calls and puts them through. Yeah. They're all fans of the show that were either on message boards or yeah. just, you know, just used to ring in, you know, randomly. Yeah. Just a really great attitude on life, the universe and everything. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was, I was just, I just really wanted to talk to him. Even if we didn't get to interview him, I would have just talked to him. Yeah, you, you were know? very excited going, going to do this yeah. interview. Like more so than I think I've seen you going to going to talk to anyone else. Great. <laughs> well, I hope I hope that introduction gives him does him justice because I I think he's like a really important figure in American culture and I I honestly think so. I was listening to that Chuck Klosterman interview uh, on a couple of different podcasts where he was talking about you know what what will be remembered in a hundred years time. I actually think somebody like Chris Gethard will be really important because he created a completely different dynamic where you know you're building up a community of people that participate in the show. It's not like a, a show that's forced to people on TV. You nearly have to find it and then participate in it and be part of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah like yeah. it's it's a really nice idea. What? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, like passionate introductions into interviews Sorry. with him. No, it's great. Jesus, that's great. That's awesome. Uh, but uh, that, that will only help, I'm sure, add to uh, his uh, longevity after we're all dead, hopefully. But we'll podcast stick around. Anyway. Um, <laughs> anyway, should we just get into it? Yeah, let's just get into it. <laughs> okay, this is uh, Neil's interview with uh, Chris Gethard. Okay, well, specifically given what we do, I wanted to ask you whether um, over the years, like from working in weird New Jersey and Public access show. Yeah. And now, obviously, on Fusion, it's like a, a new iteration of the same thing. Have you ever been tempted to do something a little bit more um, standard or like in, in the mainstream? Box. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not really. Uh, like, I'd luckily have, I have like, you know, I think in the early part of my career in life, I kind of figured that was coming. And I was seeing a lot of my friends. I was part of the UCB theater, which in the in the states is like kind of an institution now. A lot of people in comedy have, have roots there over the past 15 years, and I was seeing a lot of my friends get these cool jobs, high-profile gigs. It seemed cool. People were telling me I was going to be the next guy. It just wasn't happening. And then I finally did get a job on a sitcom, and it fell apart. It didn't go well, and that was fine. But I kind of realized like I didn't. It didn't like make me that happy when I got it. I didn't feel too sad when it went away. All the press about it was like killing me, saying I was like the worst actor they'd ever seen. Like I was reading things about myself that were just like totally calling like 
like my my talent and my likability as a human into question. I was just like, ah, oh, this sucks. <laughs> so at that point, I, I I built like a pretty massive chip on my shoulder because I was just like, man, if I'm gonna like take it on the chin this hard, it should at least be something for something I care about. And it's kind of really become like a guiding principle in my life now. Of like, I don't really want to do anything I don't care about. And like, I've been really lucky that I haven't had to. I mean, it was very, very difficult, and I spent a lot of years making no money and like scrambling to pay my rent. But in the long run, I think it's really worked out, and I just kind of kept doubling down on that idea of like, I don't want to, I don't want to sell out. So I don't know. So if, I feel like if something mainstream came to me, and I was able to take a look at it, and I actually enjoyed it or felt like it had some qualities that I wanted to get behind, then I would do it. I wouldn't be opposed to it, but as far as creating my own stuff, like I'm not sitting around strategizing, like how can I make a thing that's like gonna go on <laughs> in my in my country, like NBC, like what can I make that one of the big four networks will like? Like it's not really my yeah. thing, and I'm lucky now that I'm in a position where I don't have to. And the real reason for that is that the stuff I have done, a community has formed around it of people who are like pretty vocal and passionate. It kind of gives me some breathing room that, that other artists don't necessarily have. And that's just been through persistence. Well, like you're, you're a big punk fan, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we've done some shows in London and Dublin, but in London, we, the shows we put on was in the 100 club, which is like the, a really famous punk music venue on Oxford street. And um, the guy that runs it is like, he's in his fifties now. But has stuck to the same ethos. Do you, do you feel like being a punk fan, even as a music fan, has affected you as a comedian and a writer? It did. I felt very lucky that um, I, I, I felt very lucky when we did the public access show. It was a real experiment. That is not that is not a thing anyone does in an effort to build a career. Public access. I don't know what the version of it is. Oh, we, we have, have a, some version of it. Kind of version. Is it similar where it's yeah, kind of regarded it's like as like a sad, TV, but is it like a sad, outdated medium that only crazy people use? Hey, you know, people say a lot of things about a lot of stuff. That's right? the general stereotype <laughs> though, right? Yeah, yeah. So that wasn't like a place to go to build a successful <laughs> yeah. career. Not, not a year after you've been the lead on a sitcom. It was really concerning. Um, but I just kind of knew like coming up as a punk kid, I started going to punk shows when I was 12 or 13 years old. My older brother was into it and all his friends and they would take me to shows. So I, I felt lucky because I had really seen a lot of the DIY world in action. Like I remember people booking shows in church basements and booking shows in little halls and um, all the kids in those bands were only like two or three years older than I was. And just seeing like, oh, you can do it yourself goes a long way. Um, and I don't know if that's as much a thing in the comedy world. Like you get an agent, you get booked for clubs and road gigs and college gigs. And it's kind of like this whole infrastructure that's built that way. And then if you get good enough, you can pitch for TV stuff and maybe a network will buy your show. I just really felt like music found a way around that. They found a way around major labels. They found a way like to eliminate a lot of the gatekeepers who maybe know what they're doing in their world, but artistry or creativity is not their priority. So I kind of felt like, I wonder if I can find a TV version of that, you know? And uh, I was lucky. I was lucky that experiment proved correct. And in the course of doing that, I actually have also met the other uh, DIY comedians in the States. There's a bunch of people who set their own things up and, and they all get to know each other. And a lot of that takes place in the smaller cities, not on the coasts of America. It's been very cool. So that was really DIY. Also working at Weird New Jersey was huge for me because that was just a fanzine that two guys made. And just built and built into this thing that became 
their jobs their whole life. So I had some early examples of DIY stuff. Felt to me like, well, if they can do it, I can do it, you know? And the musicians had our backs so hard with the public access show. It was not, comedy fans did not like the show for the first six months or so. It was really struggling. And I would say rather embarrassing. But the musicians who would come on the show and play it consistently were like, no, there's something here that meant a lot, that kept us going. Do you feel like, um, <clears throat> you, like you've obviously created or curated a cultural change in the States, like that you're part of this community-based movement. You know, obviously you came up at the same time that the internet became such a big tool for musicians and for comedians. But do you feel like, um, especially being involved at UCB, you know that idea that, and I'm probably going to get this completely wrong, but that uh, situationists believe that people need to be shocked out of their day-to-day -day stupor occasionally. Like, and it just means being presented with uh, an argument or a point of view or a rationale that they would never see because it either confirms their own uh, prejudice or challenges them to think differently. Yeah. Does that kind of thing influence how you go about what you do? Mm, I mean, that's a very, very smart thing you just said. I don't think I'm <laughs> that smart. I don't know if I've thought about it in those smart terms, but what I do think, I do think like with our show, what I found was we started doing things in a different way. And the show like on the surface is very goofy, very absurd. But underneath it, it really does have like a little bit of anger and definitely a little bit of like mainstream comedy kind of kind of stinks. Like it's kind of condescending. A lot of shows in the U.S., the biggest shows still have laugh tracks where they just mm -hmm. tell you when you're supposed to laugh. Like late night shows, they all have these like pre-interviews where they ask you specific questions and you give them answers and they say, okay, we're going to ask these same four questions, give those same four answers. It's all scripted and hollow and fake. And I do think what I found was I was very angry about that. I didn't have much respect for it. And our show, underneath all the absurdity, I think, was doing some cool stuff and that attitude was in there. And what we'd started to do, I don't think we shocked anybody out of their beliefs, but I think we started finding the other people with shared beliefs, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The people who started finding it were people who were like, yeah, TV is garbage, or like TV, comedy on TV tends to like, I feel like spoken down to, or um, just kind of condescended to. And uh, they started. They were the ones who started to find it and prop it up and spread word on it. So that was really cool. I don't know if there's anybody who was like watching The Big Bang Theory who found our show and was like, oh, actually, this is what I like. <laughs> I don't think we've shocked anybody with that, but I do think what we found are like the other people who never want to watch a sitcom with a laugh track are finding our show and realizing, oh, this is like the opposite direction and it's not artificial in any way. Like there's no artifice to it especially when we were on public access, it was really like, oh no, these guys are just like walking in and they have 20 minutes to set up and then they put on a live hour long TV show. And people could feel that that was authentic and they knew that it was like, the only reason we kept doing it was because it was something we really believed in. And that went a long way towards finding the other people who were maybe like a little bit yeah. not into regular crap. And for, like, for what it's worth, the one thing that I've definitely noticed is that it goes so much further than comedy. Like, you know, you have a community of people that, that feel like the Chris Gethard show in all its iterations through the years has given them a voice. Even, like, any time you, you, you like, you're, you're presenting a podcast where, you know, where people can call in with uh, anonymous problems, which is, like, obviously a really bold move, but it still speaks to the same thing, where you're, you're kind of giving a voice to people, even the bands that you've had on, like... Do, would any of them have a chance to be on TV? Yeah. Probably not, right? Yeah, very few. I mean, a few have gone on, but we put them on first, and I'm always <laughs> proud of that, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the bands, this is band The So So Glow, is a very big part of the, the DIY Brooklyn punk world. 
they went on to be on the David Letterman show. And if you listen to their intro, they made a point of saying David Letterman says making their network TV debut because um, they said making their TV debut and they at the rehearsal, I said, no, we were on we were on the Chris Gethard show. Like it's public access. You can say network TV debut. So it felt a lot like we were finding some some common allies there. And uh, that was a really cool it was a really cool thing. I don't think that answered your question. No, 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 it does. just jumped on the music part of it. It absolutely does because, you know, I think that's an important part. And actually, on that point, having an improv background, um, do you feel like, I, I gather that a lot of improv comedians have the yes and principle so ingrained in them that it's, it's changed how they live their lives? Definitely. Do you think that's true? Big time. I became a much more positive, curious, accepting person once I started to get good at improv because it just makes you like listen to people more and pick up on things more. And I actually think like the deeper cut of that, once you get really into it, is you just kind of learn not to care in the healthiest way of just like go with it. Like don't nitpick an idea or battle with an idea or try to find the perfect version of the idea. Just like keep following the momentum and make something small into a really great idea along the way. And that really infected the rest of my career. I don't really improvise much anymore. It's mostly stand-up and the Chris Gethard show and the podcast now. Kind of all these projects I drive. And when you're interested in driving your own projects, improv is collaborative. You can't have that much ego. It took me a little while to figure that out. Of like, oh, it's okay if I move on from improv to drive my other stuff. But I think it ties back into what you were saying of like giving people a voice. Because I think one of the things about our show is like we don't care if it fails. And that means that if there's like a 15-year-old kid who lives in New Mexico and maybe doesn't live in a place where culturally or financially he or she is usually told, like, no, yeah, go express yourself. Like, they can call our show. And if it goes poorly, like, we don't get mad about it. We're yeah. fine with that. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. on to the next thing. We'll yeah, have yeah. another episode <laughs> next week. We open ourselves up for it. That's one of the things I like. And I think this is a very improv thing of, like, if you participate and it doesn't go well, I'm going to make sure I look bad and not you. Like that's always been one of my principles on stage as an improviser of like, if this doesn't go well, I want to be the one that looks bad. I don't want you ever looking bad. I think that's why people enjoy performing with me as an improviser because you create that safety net. And I try to do the same thing for our callers. Like, oh, like, you know, we get calls sometimes from kids. I'll never forget. We we would get calls from this kid for, for a long time, for like a year. He would always be the first one on the phone. And he's 14, he lived in Massachusetts, and he would call and he'd just like really take the piss out of me. He'd just like really mess with me. Start of every show would be this kid. And then sometimes I'd yell at him and that came off real poorly. Like, why is this man yelling at a boy? And I just get so frustrated. But then I remember hearing him, someone interviewed him on a podcast about our show. And he was like, yeah, he's like, I started out just being like, oh, this show's like goofy and I can prank call it. But he's like, but then I look back, and this was years after he started calling. He's like, I look back and realize, like, my parents were divorced, and my mom was really stressed out, and my dad didn't really, like, want anything to do with me, and everyone in my life was just, like, kind of stay out of the way and keep quiet. And he's like, I realized, like, it went from me, like, messing with this old dude to feeling like, oh, this, these are the only adults who kind of let me actually talk in my whole life. Like, these are the only adults taking the time to actually listen to me. And that was the type of thing where I was like, well, that's why I do this. You know, like that's hopefully the show's just really funny and goofy, but hopefully that 14 year old kid who's like family is going through a bitter divorce and he's just constantly being told like pipe down, don't cause any more trouble. We have enough stress in our life. Well, our show can be the place where you call up and just try shit and who cares? Sorry, I'm not, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse. But yeah, yeah. it's like 
just call up, try shit. If it works, it works. And if not, my name's on it. Your name's not on it. You get to hang up and walk away. That felt like a pretty cool thing to me. That felt like a thing, a lot of my choices in my whole career is trying to like build things that I can look back and wish, like that I wish I had when I was a kid. Like there's a lot of stuff where I'm like, I'm 36, I'm kind of on the other side of, hopefully, of like being pretty depressed and being pretty angry for a lot of my life and feeling kind of like cast aside. I look back and I think a lot of the choices I've made the past, you know, six or seven years of my career are trying to like maybe build a platform that I wish I had and hoping that maybe I can help push some other people to a little bit of a happier place a little sooner than I got there. God, Chris, that's really nice. That's really Thanks. nice. I, like, I know you've got to do a show. We only have a couple more questions. Sure. Um, on that last point, how do you, how do you, how do you sub- subvert your ego? Like, how do you, like, in, you said as an improv comedian that you don't mind looking foolish if something goes wrong. Yeah. The show, the stakes aren't so high that it matters if, if people fail. But, like, everybody that goes through life has, you know, the, like, idea yeah. of themselves and you know they're what they feel other people expect from them you know in every interaction i'd imagine a person like you in in fact would be presented with people day in day out that have an expectation chris gethard is this avatar he's x yeah. to me right yeah but how do you kind of separate yourself from that well i feel like i've kind of learned i learned the lesson the hard way real big in 2010 that's when i had that sitcom and it was like okay now like I had a friend in my improv group who he got on Saturday Night Live. Another friend got on the American version of The Office. Everybody's like, you're the next guy, you're the next guy. And I was like, man, it's not happening. I was very bitter, very jealous. Had to really figure out how to be a friend to my friends without my bitterness getting in the way. And then I got this sitcom and I was like, oh, cool. Now I'm, uh, I'm in the club. And then it bombed so hard and it was so embarrassing. And that was all ego. But then I, again, I stepped back. I was like, I never... Who wants to be on a sitcom with a laugh track? Like, that's not hip in any way. It's not what I like in any way. So that really smashed the ego out of me. And then what I found is, like, over the past six years, you know, going to public access, I had to swallow a lot of ego. But I was like, if I want to make this TV show that I have a vision for in my brain, no one's going to let me do it. Let me go do it in this place, turn off the ego. Let me keep doing that. And, And what I have found over and over again is anytime my ego starts to guide my choices, those choices either fail or um, they don't amount to what you thought. Come in under the expectations, like yeah. anything ego driven. So it's funny, like what I what I have found is that because it's weird. Like I also was lucky because the show, which was the thing most people came to know me for, if they know my work, everyone. I would talk on the air about how it was coming in the wake of this disaster and failure that made me feel so insecure. So I kind of built my whole cult following out of the idea that I was this kind of like broken person who had no ego left. The tank had run dry. It had really bit me in the ass. Um, so that was like a real place of power to get to and just say, to go on, go on this platform and say like, hey, I've, I ate shit publicly and now I'm on public access trying this other thing and it's not good and I know it's not that good, but I want to keep going. It was very much a lack of ego and that's kind of what square one rebuilding was and now I've had a, I'm at a point where I kind of I have to like kind of begrudgingly admit that I've become more successful and that I have some momentum and I don't love that because I love I like being the loser I like being like the underdog but what I have found is that like at the end of the day 
any amount of success, people will be like, oh, nice. And I'll, I always keep in mind, like, it's good. At the end of the day, it's like a very good job to have. And I'm lucky. I'm very lucky. But what actually makes me happy is like sharing the news with my wife or calling my mom saying like, hey, mom, I, I still have, I mean, in the States, I, I managed to earn enough to get health insurance this year. And I booked a job so you don't have to worry. I can pay my mortgage. Like, it's things like that that are very small things that I get to share with the people I love um, that are like the things that actually make me happy. And when I've gotten like bigger gigs, I'm always very, very, I feel very grateful. Don't get me wrong. I feel very blessed and lucky. But what I found is that whatever the repercussions of those gigs are beyond the actual work them, itself isn't really at the end of the day anything I'm worried about. I want to do good work. I want to do work I'm proud of. And I don't need, like people have written articles about me. That's very nice. I don't need to, I don't need the ego stroke of the articles. Like if more people find the the show or the podcast because of the articles, oh great, I'll do it. I'll do it. It's very nice you want to talk to me on your podcast. This is no offense. It's not what I'm in it for. I'm, I'm very happy <laughs> to talk about the ethics behind my art, but what I'm in it for is like make my mom proud, my wife happy. Like those are the smaller non-ego driven things. And as long as I keep those in perspective, then I can not only be a happier person, but gives me a lot more freedom to uh, take bigger chances with my work because it's a constant reminder that my wife's always going to love me. My mom's never going to be like, eh, I'm not that into you, you know? So as long as I have my priorities straight, then it doesn't matter if I swing and miss and fail again. I don't think I'm too scared of that at this point. That's so great. Um, well, the last question I wanted to ask you is a lot of our listeners and the people that contribute to the podcast are part of the community of, like, like I said, musicians and yeah. writers and stuff. But if you had like one piece of advice to give to people that are making their thing, that are trying to do something in the world, what would that be based on? I think like, if I had to give any advice to artists, I would say, first of all, never turn down a free meal. There's going to be like a lot of industry dickheads <laughs> who like want to take you out for lunches and none of those meetings are ever going to go anywhere, like very rarely. And then eventually one will and it'll be a cool thing. But you're going to have a lot of these meetings where it's like, I can get you to the top and these people can't get you to the top. And they're going to want to bring you out to restaurants. And for a long time, that would happen to me. And I feel real guilty about ordering food. And I'd always order like a side salad. <laughs> no, get seafood. Get the expensive stuff. These are industry people. They want to show off. They have money to burn. Burn their money. You're not getting money now in your early phases as an artist. So get your money in the form of free food. Do not feel guilty about it. You know, I'm Irish Catholic growing up. So I know the feeling of like shame and guilt. This person's going to be mad at me. They're not. Get scallops, get lobster, like go for it. Get the free food. I would also say like, um, like just, just from, I, I feel like you have to constantly touch base with why you wanted to do it in the first place, especially as your friends start moving on, especially as people start getting gigs. Like everyone comes up and you either quit or you keep going. And if you keep going long enough, you're going to see somebody you came up with wind up on TV or wind up in the, in the movies or the films, as they say here, I understand. But it's like... Other, I think one of the biggest things that I had to learn that I wish I learned sooner was like other people's success doesn't equate to my failure. They have almost nothing to do with each other. You're going to see people who you know you're better than, funnier in, in my case, comedy, more talented than. There's going to be bands who hear other bands that have shittier songs. Those people are going to be on the radio. That doesn't have anything to do with you. They got lucky. Be happy for them. They're paying their rent. They're feeding their families. 
other people's success doesn't really have anything to do with your failure. And I will say too, just on a basic level, one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is like, especially for the non-musicians, the musicians won't care about this. And they'll probably, I think, appreciate the pat on the back. But for people who are artists that aren't musicians, I keep reminding myself of like, you got to remind yourself how music made you feel when you were 14. Like that makes you better as an artist, I think. Like I always... I always find myself when I'm stressed out listening to the bands I listened to when I was a kid and it always puts my priorities back in place because I think music more than most art forms, especially for people my age, it's like this thing that when you find it and when you find people you identify with who you think are doing it the right way, it feels so eye-opening. Like when I first, for me, and I know a lot of people on this side of the ocean roll their eyes at this big time, but like for me it was when I found the Smiths, all of a sudden I was like, these, you're not supposed to say stuff like you can't write a song, <laughs> let alone the first song on an album about how you hate your teachers in high school. Like, you're not allowed to do that. You're supposed to be a rock star. You're supposed to be cooler than that. But for me, it was them. They would start saying these things and like talk about being tough, even though they were like feminine guys. And like, I think music makes you feel, music wakes you up when you're young. I think you have to always kind of remember that and touch base with that. And, uh, for me, it's been a very big thing of like, especially with the Gethard show, we'll have like, do you know Jeff Rosenstock? Are you familiar? He's a punk guy from the US. Very, very good. And like, totally, you should talk to him someday. If you like conversations like this, he's like, he was one of the first people to just start giving music away for free and really a pioneer in the DIY world in the US on a lot of that stuff in the punk world. And I remember the first time he came on my show, I hadn't, I hadn't, I wasn't too familiar with his music before. And then he came on and I was like, oh, I feel like I'm 14. I need to sit down and start writing because that, that feeling is just very, very important, I think. And the shit you care about when you're 30, where you are like, I want to be famous and I want money and I want girls and I want attention from people. That's not why you got into it. You got into it because you were crazy enough to feel compelled that you need to say something. You didn't care how it turned out when you were starting out. If you, if you go on stage, especially for a comedian, the first time you go on stage, it's so terrifying that if you do it a second time, you're actually crazy on some level. You're compelled to say something so, at such a, you're so compelled to say something that you're willing to just like eat shit and embarrass yourself and just bomb over and over and over again. So there was a reason you did that and you need to remind yourself of that reason. You need to touch base with the reason you first did it, not the priorities now. The priorities now get gross over and over and over again. The original priorities were on target, so find them, find them. There's that a, would be my advice. That's so brilliant. There's a musician that I really like called Jake, an Irish guy. I think you should check him out. He's great. He's been a like a hardcore instrumental band called the Redneck Manifesto. Okay. And uh, he had a, a really great interview last week where he said he's turning 40 now. He's been in like punk bands and yeah. he's in this electronic band. He said he's talking about like 40 year old rappers and how he wishes that they rapped about things that actually matter to them. Yeah. You know, not girls, not yeah. parties, not guns. We said, you can't stay young, but you have to stay honest. It's true. And I've learned that too. Like a friend of mine pulled me aside a couple of years ago and he was like, I don't know if this loser thing's going to work, man. Like you're showing up on TV more and like <laughs> you got a pretty wife and she's on your show. Everybody can see her. You, she, everybody knows you're like doing pretty well. And that was a real reminder of like being honest. And it, it's made me realize, I feel like I've like the past few years, the public access version of my TV show, a lot of it was just people watching me kind of like bleed emotionally and figure my life out. <laughs> But the current version I feel is more, I feel really good about it because now I feel like I'm sort of like the older guy in the corner of the room and there's a lot of kids finding my show who are like, 
how'd you turn out okay? You seem like a train wreck. <laughs> I still feel like a train wreck. And I feel like now I can be a guy who like talks to these younger fans. And Let me like, tell you about train. I was like, no, it's also like, it's like, exactly. Like I'm the train conductor now. <laughs> yeah. And maybe I can help you avoid a train wreck. It's become my goal. But it is, it's like, well, at a certain point, you're either going to, you're going to like, you're just going to become resigned to the fact that you can't change what you can't change. And you'll feel okay, I guess. And I feel like that's become a little, like, I think you're totally on target. That's what I'm saying. Of like, if it's not honest, who cares? Throw it in the garbage. Like that's when you become music that gets they'll make instrument, instrumental versions and play them in elevators. Like who cares about your dishonest stuff? You better say something, or you're wasting everybody's time, most of all your own. Uh, Chris, thank you so much. That Please, was thank you for letting me pretentiously so rant about. Not art. at all. What are you it talking was about? And that was Neil chatting to Chris Gethard uh, in the Ivy Gardens last month at the Vodafone Comedy Festival. Uh, good job, Neil. Thank you. Um, I hope that audio was okay. We, you gave us a loan of your recording thing, and uh, we didn't get get to use it properly. And I had to use my mobile phone. Sorry about that. Yeah, I should point. We should point out that yeah, we had a little trouble with this, and and, and uh, a couple of episodes ago with the Sashir Zameda and. Um, Thankfully, uh, thankfully, thankfully, we had Emma Butt, yes. who's our sound engineer, mixer and mastering extraordinaire, who managed to rescue the really bad recordings <laughs> that I made on both of those occasions. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. important to point that out. It is what, important. But when, you know, when, when you know, for, for her, she's a gr- fantastic professional who really knows her stuff. So, um, so yeah, if, if anything sounds so parts because we, uh, we, we ballsed up the recording. But we have that thing working now and we are recording on it right now. That stupid Tascam. Actually, you know, Tascam, if you want to sponsor the podcast in the future, maybe <laughs> uh, give us one of your recorders that works. No, Neil, you were not using it properly. Uh, listen, figure that out last when we got week home. I had to come back here at 10 o'clock at night because yes, you balls because it up. Because I balls it up. Yeah, but like, I don't think we can uh, blame the good people at Tascam for our ineptitude. Yeah, I mean, I think assuming that they're good people is wrong. I kind of feel like they are. They probably are. It's I mean, not Sony. <laughs> <laughs> We're all agreed on that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, on that note. That oh, I, and also, uh, Ailish Bracken, who is our producer, who put uh, um, put us in touch with uh, Chris Gethard and Sashir Zameda. Um, thank you so much for doing a great job. And thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, give us a shout on Twitter. Uh, all that stuff. And Facebook. All that stuff. I'm so um, tired of talking about our social media. Just give us a call. Just give us a call. Um, it's just, it gets lonely, yeah. you know? Let us know you're out there. Let us know you're listening. Um, we really appreciate you listening. And uh, uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Chat to you then. Bye.